All right, everybody, come on in and find a seat. We'll get started. And the notebooks for Master Plan for Life are on, on the seats. So if you sat in a chair that does not have one of these on it, then we'll want to get one to you. So we need one here. But there are, and here's one up here too, John. They were just too bulky for the guys to hold and pass out as you came in. So we put them on the seats. Most of you got them that way. Anybody did not get one? So they are on the chairs. Just find one on a chair and we'll be good to go. Well, welcome to the first week of 28 for Master Plan for Life. That's why you have a 290-page notebook in your hand. And I'm going to explain what Master Plan for Life is then and what we'll be covering for these 28 uh, weeks together. So I invite you to turn past the uh, table of contents and to page one in your notebook. At the top there, we say Master Plan for Life is a course of study to de- designed to acquaint believers with the foundational truths of the Word of God. Those of you that are coming in, there are notebooks on the seats, so just find a notebook that no one has and claim that one for yourself. And we are on page one, and I should have said they all look the same, and you'll be using them for 28 weeks, so put your name in it and bring it back each week. And if you don't bring it back, we'll have copies of the individual lessons each of the 28 weeks for those who forget, because undoubtedly that'll happen. But if you need a replacement copy of the book, you have to pay for it. This one was free. But uh, they actually cost a bit to print and bind and all of that. So a a replacement copy costs like 10 bucks. So you'll be able to get one in the resource center, but It'll cost you. So hang on to this one with your, with your life and put your name on it, okay? Page one, Master Plan for Life is a course of study designed to acquaint believers with the foundational truths of the Word of God. Now, this class, Master Plan for Life, is one of several that are, are what we call our core classes to help people get established in their faith. We have another class called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, Next fall, we'll be doing that class in this room during, during this hour. So we're offering the core classes at what we hope to be more accessible times for you. And that's why we are offering it now, because Sunday is accessible for more people than when we used to do it, which was on in our midweek program on Wednesdays. We've probably had about 50% of our congregation who's been able to go through this over the years in our midweek program on Wednesday nights. But that still leaves a sizable number like yourselves who have not been able to do that. So that's why we're offering those classes during, this, uh, during Sunday. So I hope you'll be able to avail yourself of that not only this year for Master Plan for Life, but next year for how to get the most out of your Bible as, as well. Uh, and I'll go on reading here in a moment, but I should have said this too. There's another class going on right now for those who have already taken Master Plan for Life. So if you wandered in here and realize, you know, I already took this class, or I started to take it and I hated it, and so I'd like to do something else. The do something else is 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians. And Dr. Combs is leading that class, uh, starting that as I speak, out that back door, across the hallway, in adult classroom too. So if you get up now and you go to that class, it won't hurt my my feelings. We will just quote uh, 1 John 2.19 and apply it to you which says this, and they went out from us because they were not of us. (laughs) For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That's all we'll we'll say about it, all right? All right, top paragraph there. The purpose of this nine-month study is discipleship. So the word discipleship needs to be understood. The term disciple strictly means this, a follower or a learner. Hence, it's a descriptive term for believers or followers of Jesus Christ. The following distinctions should be carefully observed. Disciples are believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, in the book of Acts in your New Testament, the word disciple and the word believer are used interchangeably. 
Every believer is a disciple. Every believer is a follower of Jesus. There's no such thing in the Bible as somebody who says, I believe in Jesus, but I don't follow him. If you're a genuine believer in Jesus, then you follow him. So disciples are believers in Jesus. Discipleship is the process by which those believers mature. And then a related term, disciplines, are the activities in which those maturing believers engage. Now some speak today of discipleship as a commitment one makes sometime after salvation. They say disciples are made, not born. But more accurately, scripturally, disciples are born. The minute you are born again, the minute you become a believer... You become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, but then you are, and we are all to be then, matured. So this is a course on discipleship to help you do that by giving you a clear, hopefully, understanding of these foundational truths of God's Word. Now here's why we need a study like this. This course of studies designed to address three specific needs in a typical local church like ours. We need members who know who they are as a result of their union with Christ. Many Christians never grasp the wonder and significance of being called a child of God. Without an understanding of that foundational truth, namely the answer to this encompassing question, who am I, then obedience to God is mechanical and true inward change seldom happens. Secondly, we need a common theological foundation for those who are members of our church. Most churches are a composite of people that have divergent backgrounds. Effective ministry in the realm of education and evangelism requires unity in the understanding, the application of God's word. So let me stop there for a moment. It means that if you go through these 28 weeks with us, you will have this foundational understanding. And it will ground you in truth so that you will not be susceptible to being blown around with every wind of doctrine. That's a phrase from the Bible. That people who are not grounded in truth are susceptible to being blown around by every wind of doctrine. There are lots of teachers out there, but those teachers do not all equally teach truth. Some teach smatterings of truth, which makes it harder to detect the error. But having gone through this, it'll give you a foundational grid through which you can now listen to other teachers. Now that's important because I have seen in my own ministry over the years people who have drifted away into things that are not biblical, otherwise good people. Uh, we had a couple years ago, a young couple, a very good couple, and they are now into uh, a sect, an almost cultish thing, that says that we are under the law that's in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. We're going to see in our time together that the Bible teaches we are not under the law. In any respect, we are not under the law of the Old Testament. These young people should have known better, but, apparent, but they were allured away. In large part, they got started because they liked the dietary laws in the law in the Old Testament. And they decided that this is the way God wants us to eat. Therefore, under the law, this must be the way God wants us to live. By the way, neither is true. The Old Testament doesn't tell you how to eat today as we'll see in weeks to come. And the Old Testament law is not a law binding on us today now that Jesus has come and made an end to the law, the Bible says. But that's one sad example of that. Somebody getting started in that through something innocent like, what's the best diet I can be on? Let's look in the Bible. There it is. Let's do that. Oh, we're not doing a bunch of stuff we should be doing like feasts and holy days and all that. There's a reason we're not doing that. But they didn't get it. Or another brother in the Lord, who a few years ago started and still does, I'm told, teach that uh, the church did not start, as the Bible teaches, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, as we'll see together. But the church started sometime many, many years later in the book of Acts. And there's a whole theory that now has developed out of when the church started and there are all sorts of things that you have been taught that aren't for you today, say uh, these folks. And it's, it's just very sad to see. So I'm telling you that, you just say that danger is very real, of people being blown away with every wind of doctrine. And so having a common theological understanding that comes straight from Scripture 
is important for all of us. Number three on page one, local churches also need trained servants. Many church members wander aimlessly through life because they feel inadequate to minister. The result is the few carry the burden of ministry while the many watch as spectators. So you will see as we go that God has equipped us, especially when we get to part two of this, that God has equipped all of us to serve in his church. So here are the goals. This course of study is intended to meet the needs addressed above. It will explore the new identity of the believer with the aim of creating exciting, willing followers of Christ rather than enforcing mechanical obedience. Spiritual disciplines must be a reflection of an understanding of who we are. Or to put it another way, what we do should flow out of who we are. Secondly, it will provide a basic theological literacy. Will not only emphasize doctrinal facts, but also pursue the ability to logically fit those together in a systematic fashion. This process of biblical thinking is the necessary sound foundation to biblical living. And then we'll give the student the necessary tools to become an effective servant in the ministry of the church. Knowledge is not an end in itself. It should always be channeled into a productive use for the Christian that's always service. All right, we're going to see how each of the lessons is laid out, and then we'll get into lesson one in just a bit. But what you have in front of you, Master Plan for Life, was written with those goals in mind 25 years ago. 25 years ago, I spent a year with three other pastors, and we developed this. Then we spent another year refining it, trying to get rid of the typos and all of that from the previous year. And so all those years since, I've been teaching this. I've taught this uh, just about every year for those for those 25 years. Uh, so it is something that I'm familiar with and I'm most importantly familiar with how it has helped people uh, attain the goals that we've, we've talked about here. This uh, book that you have in front of you has been translated into other languages. It's used by at least a dozen other churches in their ministry as well and they found it to be helpful. So I'm telling you that to say come and come for the full 28 weeks uh, if you can, because you will, uh, I trust, find it helpful. Now, I say we took a year to get the typos out and reformat it, and I've been using that reformatted version for all these years. And then two years ago, uh, Dr. Combs and Pansy joined our church. And many of you know Dr. Combs, retired professor from Detroit Baptist uh, Seminary, retired two years ago. They moved down this way, and we're delighted to have them at our church. But Dr. Combs has this curse. Because in part of his teaching at the seminary over the years, he taught a class called Research and Writing. And he also edited the seminary's journal that came out a couple times a year. So in his Research and Writing class, he was telling students how to write papers, how footnotes go, how many spaces after the footnote you start the, word, the first word, uh, all this meticulous stuff. He edited the seminary journal so he can spot a misplaced comma a mile away. So the curse for him is, every time he reads something, he's seeing all these misplaced apostrophes and commas and all of that. So he saw this, that we've been using for, you know, 20-some years. And he said, look, I've got to reformat that. So he's taken like two months to reformat what you have in front of you. So here's why I'm telling you all that. You've got the reformatted version by Dr. Combs. And our quest for these 28 weeks is to find a misplaced comma. <laughs> we are going to find something that is wrong. You find something's wrong. So that I can go to him with some glee and say, you missed it, man. All right. So how are these lessons laid out? Page two. Each lesson of the 28 has three components designed to address those goals mentioned above. Learning the truth is a self-study process otherwise known as homework, by which the student will be guided in the study of the Bible to prepare for each week's lecture. The self-study units divided into six segments, one for each day of the week between classes. It will not only be valuable in the learning process, but it will help you establish the habits of daily Bible study. So on pages 12 and 13, excuse me, 13 and 14 of your notebook are the homework, the self-study section for next week pages 13 and 14. After we get done with today's lessons, lesson, the next pages are 13 and 14, and you'll see day one, day two, day three, and it'll have read this passage, answer these questions. 
That's all designed to prepare you for next week's lecture. And for all of the 28 weeks, you'll have that. So you'll have something to do. Now, we don't check it. We don't ask if you did it. So you could come in for 28 weeks and never have done any of that. But I encourage you to do it. It'll give you something to have you in the Bible every day in between Sundays. So day one will be Monday, tomorrow. Do the first of those on page 13. Tuesday, the next, and so on. And then you'll have an idea of what it is uh, already prepared, what it is I'll be talking about next week, okay? All right, back to page two. Learning together is the lecture time. And we'll go through the lessons together, and I will lead that. And I won't just read through the material, but as you'll see, I'll try to expand upon that and explain it as we go. And then learning to live it is a small group discussion and application. And unfortunately, because we have a large group, we're not going to be able to do that piece. But you'll have a page at the end of each lesson that is that learning to live it section. So I'll encourage you to just read the questions there so that you can ask yourself, how would I apply what we learned in real life. All right, page three. So master, yes. So thank you. Thanks for bringing that up. So you do the uh, homework and then you wonder whether or not you did it right because we don't ask if you did it and we don't check it. Uh, so each week we're going to have the answers to the homework posted online at our website, cbctrenton.com. Now, I emailed to those of you that are on my email list, I emailed to you the first lesson for today so that you could do that if you so chose. The, the answers to that first lesson, homework, are online right now. And then toward the end of this week, we'll put the answers to lesson two, pages 13 and 14 that you'll be doing, and every week we'll do that. So on our website, cbctrenton.com, there's a banner page that looks like what's on the screen. You click on that, and it'll go to the audio for the particular lessons that we've done. If you miss one, you can listen to it there. And then next to it, there's a button to push for the answers to the homework. And it'll pop up on the screen, and you can check your answers against what's, what's there. Is that what you were asking, Liz? To, to hear. Yeah, and those will be, the audio will be there, but also the answers to the homework will be there as well. All right, page three, part one. Master plan for life is these 28 weeks, but it is divided into two parts, each of them seeking to answer one major question. Part one is answering the question, who am I? Part two answers the question, why am I here? In order to answer the question, who am I? We have five sections under part one, a section on the doctrine of God, that goes for five lessons, five weeks. A section on the doctrine of the Bible, that's three weeks. Doctrine of man and sin, two. Doctrine of Christ, two. And the doctrine of salvation, four, for a total of 16. So there are 16 lessons in part one, all designed to contribute to answering this one question, who am I? What's my identity in, in Christ? By the time we're done with those 16 weeks, you can give, should be able to give a full answer to that. Then in part number two, we're going to have 12 lessons, and that will be about answering the question, uh, why am I here? So those doctrines that you see on page three, doctrine of God, Bible, man and sin, Christ, salvation, those are common categories that go into what's called a systematic theology. Uh, I have on my, in my library a number of books by different authors that all have the same title, systematic theology. So it's a systematic theology by so-and-so. And there are some classic systematic theologies. There's some newer ones. But what are they? A systematic theology is this. It's a categorization, a categorizing, a systematizing of the truths of Scripture on particular doctrinal topics. And they're always divided the way you see in front of you. The doctrine of God doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of humanity and sin, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of the church, doctrine of last things. That's what does the Bible teach about the end times and all of that. We have, at the end of this all, we have some lessons on that. So this is really what you're looking at on page three. That's a systematic theology, but it's a systematic theology for regular people. That's what I call it. So we're going through a systematic theology for regular people.
and, uh, and uh, it is systematic in that it is categorized. It is theology in that it's truth, it's doctrine from Scripture. The first of those categori- categories of doctrine is the doctrine of God. So if you look at page 4, we're seeking to answer the question, who am I? And to answer that question f- uh, fully, we'll have this first lesson and then we'll have four more following in, in the weeks ahead. Who am I? I am a finite creature who is responsible to the infinite creator. That's what you get out of these lessons. We're going to go through that to show you you're a limited, finite creature, but we're responsible to the infinite, unlimited creator. The term theology refers to the study of God. It's used in both a general sense and a specific one. The terms apply generally to any study of biblical truth, theology. But a study specifically concerned with a person of God is known as theology proper. And that's the subject of these five lessons, theology proper. Now, it might seem unusual to answer, to begin the answer to the question, who am I with the study of God? Some would no doubt begin with the question, uh, uh, answer the question with a challenge to look inside and know yourself. Others would begin with a discourse on self-esteem. But just as the logical starting place in any book is the beginning, so our study must start, quote, in the beginning. That's where the Bible starts, in the beginning, God. Your life is a small part of a greater history. You're part of the human race. To know yourself, you must see the big picture. Specifically, you must understand how and why humanity came into being. That necessarily requires an understanding of the one who created you. So that's why we start there. If you're going to know yourself and you're going to know why you're here, I've got to be able to answer who am I before I can understand why I'm here. And in order to understand who I am, I've got to know who it is that put me here who God is. And that's why then we're starting with with God. That's why when our church moved into this building four years ago, uh, I determined that one of the first series we would do to introduce ourselves to the community was in the opening chapters of the Bible. And so we spent months going through Genesis 1 through 11 in order to start where the Bible starts and lay the foundation for everything else that we do. Last paragraph there, without a clear and accurate knowledge of the character of the true God, the Christian faith is unintelligible and principles of Christian living are meaningless. So this study of the doctrine of God provides the foundation for every other lesson in Master Plan for Life. So if you can avoid missing any of these first five, that would be great. If you do miss some of them, as Liz asked, are the audio available? It is. You go to our website, click on the banner, and the audio will will be there. All right, page five and page six are, uh, or excuse me, page yeah, five and six are the homework that if you received my email, you might have had a chance to do that ahead of time. If you didn't, that's okay. The answers for that are online. You'll do the homework for next week on pages 13 and 14. Page seven, first lesson. And this lesson is titled, back on page five, it's titled, Uh, the person of God. This is the person we call God. Introductory lesson on God. If you're a believer, you know God. Think about that. You know Him, and you can come to understand Him better. Getting to know God better is a goal the Christian will spend his entire life pursuing. Let me add, You'll not just spend your entire life pursuing that if you're serious about God, if you're serious about knowing who you are and why you're here. You'll not only spend your entire life doing that, you'll spend eternity doing that. Have you ever thought of that? We sometimes get the idea that when we get to heaven, we'll know everything. And we won't have to learn anymore. But see, the moment you know everything, guess who you just became? You became God. You will always be learning. And in fact, learning about the infinite God will be an eternal pursuit for us. So certainly it's a lifetime pursuit, but it's also an eternal pursuit. And it is a pursuit that is never boring or impractical, or at least that's the way it should be for the initiated. To know God is the most relevant activity that can be undertaking. It's life-changing. If we know this God and we know his character and he has taken pains to reveal, make that known to us, so therefore he wants us to know that, 
And once we do know that, then it has a profound impact on us. So this lesson is designed to introduce you to three basic truths about God. Simply an introduction because there's always more to learn about him. But these three basic truths form the foundation of our lifelong task of building an understanding of the God of the universe. They are these. He exists. He's a person. He is a triunity. First of all, God exists. This truth might sound too simple, but it is the place where a discussion of God has to begin. His existence is doubted or denied by many people. Note the following facts about God's existence. First, the existence of God is simply stated as fact in Scripture. From the opening words of the first book, the reader is brought face to face with the Creator God, and no attempt is made to prove it. No logical arguments are given. There's just a clear statement of fact in the beginning, in the beginning God. All right, so let's stop there for a moment. The Bible assumes people know that God exists. It assumes that. And it's a very good assumption. Because as creatures made by the Creator, think about this. Think about being the first creature, Adam. You're the first one made, and God now comes and talks to you and gives you instructions. What, do you, what, do you, what did Adam say when God talked to him? Did Adam say, hey, do you have any documentation to prove who you are? You got anything that could convince me that you're really God? God didn't have to prove anything to Adam because the knowledge of God was innate in Adam as a creature, as we're going to see, made in his image. So this is why the Bible says just in the beginning God, because all people, by virtue of being creatures of the Creator, were made to know his voice, were made to know him. Now I just... We say here in the middle of page 7 that many people doubt or deny his existence. That's true, they do. But in order to do that, the Bible says they have to suppress the truth that they know about God. It's not that people do not have sufficient information about God, but rather they hold down the truth that they do have about him. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, if you care to jot that down, Romans 1.18. That's your notebook, you can write in it. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God, the anger of God, is being revealed against the ungodliness of people who, quote, suppress the truth by the way they live. They suppress it. They hold it down. And then it goes on to say, for what may, may be known of God has been made plain to them. So they know God, but they hold that truth down. The person who says, I'm an atheist, is denying what that person was made to be and holding down the innate truth about God that they were equipped with as his image bearer. This is why you see in Scripture people like the Apostle Paul operating on that basis that the people to whom he's talking already know God. Paul operated that way. When he went to people he didn't know, he dealt with them on the basis of some things he knew about them, even though he didn't know them personally. And the first thing he knew about them, even though he had never met them, is this. They know God. What proof do I have of that? Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 32. In Acts chapter 17, 16 to 32, you have given there an, a story, an encounter between the Apostle Paul and some Athenian philosophers in Athens, Greece, the philosophical capital of the ancient world. He went to Athens, Greece, and you can read the account there. But as he proclaims the truth about Jesus to them, he assumes they know God. As a matter of fact, he says, the one you ignorantly worship, I am now going to proclaim to you. They were idolaters. He's saying, but you have, a, you have a knowledge you suppress of the true and living God, and I'm going to proclaim him to you. He goes on in that encounter to quote some of their own poets who in their poetry tacitly admit that there is this true and living God. So Paul understood. He wrote Romans 1 saying that people suppress this truth about God. 
He has this encounter in Athens, Greece, where he assumes people he don't know, doesn't know understand the truth about God further. There is such a thing. Here's a fancy term, but it's called the transcendental argument for the existence of God. The transcendental argument for the existence of God. What does that mean? Some of you may be familiar with the debates over the centuries about trying to prove that God exists. The Bible doesn't do that. It just starts in the beginning, God. But there's the teleological argument that says everything looks like it's moving toward an, an appointed end. Everything has a, an effect. Every cause has an effect. That's called the teleological argument. Telos means end or goal. There's the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Design, the way the cosmos, the way the world is designed. So look at that. That's, a, that's an argument for the existence of God. These are, all, these are all fine. I'm not against any of these. Uh, they're, and they're all true. But then there's this transcendental argument. And this is actually the best one, I think. The transcendental argument for the existence of God is this. That the person who denies God cannot deny God without first assuming him. That the person who denies God actually can't live consistently with that denial. That's what the transcendental argument is. So here's, here's what it means. For example, the person who denies God might use logic, for example, to show you why there is no God. I've watched debates between Christian theologians and proclaimed atheists or the atheist tries to use logic to prove that there is no God. But here's the problem. <clears throat> if there's no God, there's no logic. See, you're using something that's impossible from your worldview. In fact, there's a, there's a, there's a famous debate between the profound Christian theologian Greg Bonson, who's now with the Lord and died of a heart attack at 47 in 1995, one of the great tragedies. This guy should still be with us. Uh, but he's not. But he wrote prolifically in his 45 years. And he's in debate against an atheist. And the atheist says, I'm going to use the laws of logic. And Bonson says, where did the log laws of logic come from? And of course he has no answer. So the transcendental argument shows the person who denies God that even their very denial requires tools that require God. So God exists. It's stated as fact in, in Scripture. Secondly, the existence of God is revealed in the Bible. God is under no obligation to prove to people that he exists. Any such obligation would make him the slave of us. But God has chosen to reveal himself, make himself known through his word. Anyone who genuinely desires to know God must gain an understanding of him from the Bible where we learn his identity. The Bible identifies God as the creator. So the world and the fact that you're a creature tells you that there's a God. You were made to know that. You were made to know his voice. But it doesn't tell you who this God is. It just tells you there is one. What the Bible does is identify God as the creator. So it tells you there's a creator. You're the, you're the creature. You know that from creation itself. You know that innately because you were made to know that. But then to know more about this God, to know his identity and more about what he is like, that requires that he reveal that, make that known. And he's done that in Scripture. So I call this the revelational imperative. The revelational imperative. That is, it's imperative. It's absolutely necessary that God reveal, that is, make known, things about himself if we're to know him. We know he exists by being creatures. But in order to know more about him, and certainly to know him personally, there's the re it's imperative that he reveal it, that he make it known. The Bible is the way that he does that. The Bible identifies the God of the Bible as the creator. The more one learns about the intricacies and the order of the universe, the more faith is required to believe that it's the product of chance. The conscience of person, hey, wait, stop. Am I reading that correctly? 
the conscience of person recognizes the existence. We got him. We have got him. Hallelujah. First page of the first lesson. We've gotten Combs with a mistake. This is not just a missing comma. It's a missing word. Oh, this is beautiful. The conscience of the person, bottom of page 7, of the person recognizes the existence of a creator through creation. The Bible reveals his true identity and his, his character. So the Bible identifies God as the creator, top of page 8. And the Bible shows that history has been planned by this God. Life, history, sometimes referred to rightly as his story. History, his story. Because all that takes place in time is the outworking of his plan. And the Bible shows that all that takes place has been planned by God. This fact is seen in things like fulfilled prophecy. God has demonstrated who he is because he declares, according to the Bible, the end from the very beginning. Before it happens, at the beginning, God declares what's going to happen in the end. How does he know what all is going to take place in between? Because he's planned it. God has planned all of history. It's been estimated that the Bible has over 300 fulfilled prophecies regarding the person of Christ alone. You're familiar with some of those, perhaps? Where he would be born, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 in the first part of your Bible, Micah 5-2. Hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, and yet the prophet Micah predicts that the chosen one, the Messiah, will be born in an obscure town called Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. The Bible says what line, lineage, that the Messiah will come through. He will come through according to Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. Genesis 49, 10. He will come through the tribe of Judah. That's why in the Bible Jesus is sometimes referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Because the Bible predicted that this one would be born in Bethlehem and he would be born through the descendants of Judah, the son of Joseph, one of the twelve, or son of uh, Isaac, one of the twelve tribes. God not only planned this, but God made sure in the outworking of all the events of history that it would happen just as he planned. That the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. If you read the book of Ruth, the eighth book of your Bible, short four chapters long, if you read the book of Ruth in those four chapters, one of the major reasons that that book is in the Bible is this, is to tell us the story of how Bethlehem came on the radar. Because it was, it was King David's great-grandparents, Ruth and Boaz. And his great-grandfather, a guy named Boaz, who was actually from this little town named Bethlehem. And he marries Ruth, and then Ruth, they have a child, and then he has a child, and then David comes from that. And the city of David is Bethlehem, all because of the story of Ruth and Boaz. And as you read those four chapters, you see how God was orchestrating the events of Ruth's life and Boaz to bring them together in order for Bethlehem to be the lineage of David, who's a descendant of Judah, the line of Judah, and then ultimately Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, predicted by Micah in Micah 5.2, and he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Bible shows that history has been planned by God. Thirdly, the Bible records God's acts in history. The Bible is not a book that was delivered at one time without a historical context. It records the acts of God in history by which he made himself known to mankind. Now, why do we care about that? Well, here's why. Because the Bible is historical, it can be uh, verified or invalidated. Christianity is an historical religion. That all of the claims that Christianity makes take place in an historical context. And that is actually unique in Christianity. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. But most other world religions 
You simply have the word of the founder of that religion. You either believe it or you don't. You take the Quran. The Quran is written by Muhammad and given by Muhammad. You either believe what Muhammad said or you don't. There are no prophecies in the Quran. There's nothing uh, outside the history of the life of Muhammad in the Quran. But in the Bible, you have a book that was written over a 1,500-year period by 40 different people, all from different backgrounds, with all of these kinds of predictions in it. But not only that, things that happened to those people over that 1,500-year period, these are historical occurrences. They either happened or they didn't. Now, unbelievers have claimed over the years that things that are said in the history of the Bible, the narratives of the Bible, just never happened. The writers of the Bible just made these things up. Here's an example. For the longest time, they ridiculed the existence of a group of people called the Hittites in the Old Testament, the Hittites. There was no archaeological evidence. Nobody had ever heard of any. There were no writings about the Hittites. These were the perennial enemies of the Israelites, and they, the writers just made this up. They made this up to make the Israelites look like heroes against some fictitious foe. But then, lo and behold, about 80 years ago, archaeological dig uncovers evidence of, guess who? The Hittites. And friends, this has happened over and over and over again. So much so that those who are familiar with the Bible and archaeology say that with every spade that an archaeologist turns over, it further confirms the truth of what the Bible says. There is no fact, zero, none, nada. These are historical facts now. Not one has been controverted by any historical contrary fact. Not one. So you can have great confidence in your Bible because it records God's acts in history. It is not simply the word of someone, but these can be verified or falsified. And of course, since it's God's word, they are always verified. So the existence of God is identified, the Bible identifies God as the the creator. The Bible shows that history has been planned by God. But then the existence of God is a matter of faith. We say on page 8, it's a matter of faith. Now, when we say it's a matter of faith, you could take that to contradict what I just said. When we say it's a matter of faith, you could take that to mean, look, you just either believe it or you don't. But when we say it's a matter of faith, we're not saying it's a matter of blind faith. You see, there's a difference between faith and blind faith. The Christian faith is a reasoned faith. It's a reasonable faith. It's a faith that has reasons. It has compelling reasons to believe. Believe and faith are the same thing. So I have compelling reasons to believe in this God who is identified in the Bible. So never fall into the trap of thinking that faith is the same thing as blind faith. Throughout history, Christians have endeavored to convince non-Christians that God exists by using weighty logical arguments. But the best really that these can accomplish is to demonstrate the probability, but never the certainty. All people know there's a God of some sort, but the true God must be known through his self-revelation in the, in the scriptures. So one other kind of proof of that, you know, that the person who does not want to believe simply does not want to believe, not for lack of evidence, but because of a lack of the will to believe. If you've ever spoken with an atheist, you have probably heard them say things like this. I can't believe in a God who would. Have you ever heard that? A God who would allow natural disasters, Hurricane Irma's or that kind of thing. I can't believe in a God who would allow that. Now notice, that argument has nothing to do with the existence of God, does it? That has to do, hear this, that has to do with whether you like the God who exists. You're perfectly free to not like the way he does things. But your very argument assumes that he exists. You're ticked at him. You don't like the way he does things. Well, the Bible has an answer for that too. The Bible, I'm paraphrasing, But the Bible says the human race is ticked at God because of sin. We're upset with God that he doesn't run things to our liking. But that's a totally different thing 
than an argument against the existence of God. That has to do with the character of the God who exists. So God exists. Secondly, page 8, God is a person. Most people are vaguely religious. The existence of a supreme power makes sense to them. At the same time, they're unwilling to admit that this power is the God of the Bible. Many under the influence of mystical religions from the Far East have come to think of God as a force or a controlling energy. But the Bible is very clear that he's a person. So this would be the Oprahized approach to God. Some of you really you young folks may not know who Oprah is. <laughs> but, you know, she had this very... Does she still even have a show? I know she's got her own network. I don't know whether she still has a show. But she had a show for many years. And, uh, and she would talk in spiritual terms a lot, but her spiritual terms were not the God of the Bible. Uh, And they were this more vague kind of energy and force. And you have lots of people today who say, I'm spiritual. But their spiritual life fits more into this mystical approach rather than the personal God of of Scripture. So what is the meaning of the personality of, of God? The Bible presents a complex view of personality, both human and divine. Theologians sometimes differ as to what constitutes personality, but it usually is agreed that a person possesses three faculties. So if you're a person as opposed to a non-person, you have these, you have these three faculties. You have, an, you, you have the capacity of intellect. God is an intellectual being. This is the function of the mind. As a thinking being, he acts with knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. So God is not just a force. He is a thinking being. And by the way, that's why we then are made to be thinking beings. We're made in his image, as we'll see in the section under the doctrine of man and sin. So we were made to emulate God by thinking his thoughts after him. We were made to think like God. God is an intellectual being. But secondly, top of page nine, God is a volitional being. That is, God acts, and he chooses to act. Having thought, he then chooses to act. That's the function of volition. So we are to not only think like God, we were made to act and speak like God as well. This is the function of the will. God does not act according to unthinking impulse or in submission to laws of nature. His actions are a matter of choice to fulfill his purpose. Notice Isaiah From the east, this is God talking, from the east I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. That's what God does. He's a volitional being. And he's also then a feeling being, function of the emotion. The Bible is clear that our God feels a full range of emotion from joy, sorrow, compassion to hate. So we are not only to think like God, we're to act and speak like God, intellect, volition, but also we're to delight in and hate what God does. We're to delight in what God delights in. And we're to hate that which God God hates. Now why does that matter? What's the significance of the fact that God is a person? Well, the personality of God gives, middle of page 9, significance to prayer. The Christian truly communicates with God through prayer. It's not a mechanical activity designed to simply obtain favor. It's not a vague mystical experience designed to make people feel good. Genuine prayer is heard and answered by a personal God. So when Jesus told us how to pray in the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and he said, when you pray, pray like this. Notice he didn't say pray this. He said, pray like this. I'm I'm not giving you a prayer for you to recite word for word every time you gather. Now, is there anything wrong with reciting that prayer? No. But Jesus' purpose was to give you a model of how prayer goes. So he says, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We know that. But just before that, before he gives that, he says what we have in the middle of page 9. Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Do you see how the pagans are treating Him? They're treating Him like a machine that if you keep putting, like a slot machine, you keep putting slots in there, and finally it's going to come out right. 
So just keep hitting the thing. But God's a person. And you approach him as a person. God doesn't get badgered. The truth of the matter is, as we will see next week under the omniscience of God, that he knows everything. The truth is, and Jesus said this right in the same context. If you read in Matthew 6, he says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, if he knows everything, of course. So I'm not praying to inform God. That's the way we pray, isn't it? We act like God doesn't know what's happening down here. But he already knows. But we're coming to him in dependence on him and as a person with whom we have a relationship. The personality of God gives significance to prayer. Also to worship. Those who worship idols are to be pitied because their gods are inanimate. They cannot respond. The God whom we worship is a person and so is pleased with our praise and he interacts with his people. All right, and then further. The personality of God, page 10, gives significance to service. Give significance to service. Labor is empty and it's unfulfilling when it's compelled by an impersonal system. Duty imposed without personal involvement becomes drudgery. The God of the universe is a person who does place duty upon us, yet he's personally involved in our, our labors. So God exists. The true and living God is a person, and that's why we are persons. That's why we have the faculties of mind and will and emotion, because we're made like him. And then thirdly and lastly, God is a triunity. Christianity has traditionally taught the doctrine of the Trinity. The word triunity is perhaps a better expression. Trinity stresses threeness, right? But triunity expresses both threeness and oneness. And that's what the doctrine of the Trinity is, that you have one God who is in three persons. So triunity refers to the truth that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This mystery reveals, and we'll look at what it reveals here in a minute. But let me stop and talk about this for a moment. Notice the word there, this mystery reveals. We've chosen the word mystery on purpose. To be sure, there is mystery. There's stuff that I can't get my mind, my limited mind around as it relates to the person of God. I can't do that because I have a finite, limited mind. You can't do that either. So it is... There are things about the triunity of God that are mysterious to us. It's a perfectly good word to use when you think about God. There's going to be some mystery. But notice the word we didn't use. It's a mystery, but it's not a contradiction. You see, a contradiction would be to say there is one God and there are three gods. That's a contradiction. Because you're saying opposite things about the same subject, God's existence, that there is one and there are three. The triunity doesn't say that. It just says there is one in existence. Or if it were to say there is only one person and there are three persons, that would be a contradiction. Because you're saying opposite things about the same subject, personhood. But the triunity has two subjects. God's existence and God's pers personhood. And it says in his existence he is one, in his personhood he is three. One God in three persons. So it is a mystery to be sure, but it is not a, a contradiction. Now, how should that make you feel? That you believe in this God about whom there's this mystery. I mean, I just don't know. I can't get my mind around everything. Well, you should feel fine about it, and here's why. Everybody has stuff they can't explain. If you're in college right now, young people, you're talking to professors who have stuff they can't explain. I'll, I'll remind you of what that is in a minute. 
Everybody has stuff they can't explain. And the question is, is my stuff more reasonable that I can't explain than yours? And the answer in Christianity is yes, mine's more reasonable than yours. So what can't your professor explain or any other unbeliever? Well, where did the first thing come from? No matter who you're talking to, they have to explain, in the words of the famous Christian theologian Francis Schaeffer, why there is something rather than nothing. That's what he said. Why there's something rather than nothing. We've, we're here. We're talking. If you're talking to your professor at college, we're debating. So we're here. And we are material. We are matter. And we are atoms. And we are nuclei and we are all of this stuff put together and so I ask you O oh wise one where did the first thing come from and what's the answer going to be the answer is going to be my biology textbook at the University of Michigan Dearborn and in the opening pages of my biology textbook which I kept so I could teach it years later and say this, in the opening pages, it starts with this, the primordial soup. And then it says that there were these gases. And these gases over time compressed. And the gases then, compressed gases blew up. And there was the Big Bang. But notice, you start with the gases. So I have to ask, where did the gases come from? Where did the first thing come from? And what I'm here to tell you is, nobody can give you the answer to that. I can't tell you where God came from. In the beginning, God. Everybody has to just start with something or someone. So the question is, is the thing, or in our case, the person we start with more reasonable than what you start with? I would submit that ours is infinitely more reasonable because we claim that this one that exists, whose origin we cannot explain, in the beginning God is a person, and that is what explains the fact that we are persons. Your gas theory can't do that. Your compressed gases theory can't explain what is. But everybody has to start with something, the origin of which they do not know. So don't let that make you feel bad that you don't understand everything about God, that there are things about him that are a mystery. That's true for everybody. All right. So I used this once when I was out doing some canvassing. Years ago, we were putting literature out to invite people to our parent church in Flat Rock. And I came on a Saturday morning to a door, uh, knocked on the door, and this older gentleman comes to the door, and he's not happy. And I say, hey, I'm from the church down the street, and gave him this piece of literature. And he looks at it, and he goes, Baptist. He goes, you believe in the Trinity, don't you? And I go, well, yeah, we do. He goes, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. It doesn't make any sense. And I said, uh, well, do you believe in God? He says, yeah, I believe in God. And I said, uh, well, then can you tell me where God came from? He goes, I suppose you're going to tell me. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not going to tell you. But I'm not the one who says I only believe in stuff that makes sense. You said that. You claim that the Trinity doesn't make sense, and now I'm asking you to make sense of what you do believe. How do you make sense of where God came from? And the truth is, he couldn't. And no one can. No one can tell you where the first thing or first person came from. So don't be embarrassed that there are things about God that you don't understand. 
Page 10, and we're almost done. The unity of the Godhead then. Unlike the ancient pagans who believed in many gods, that is polytheism, the Bible declares there is only one God, monotheism. But then there is the diversity of the Godhead. Without ceasing to be a unity, God exists as three persons. Each person is totally and equally God. So Christ is fully God, the Father is fully God, the Holy Spirit is fully God. The doctrine of the triunity illustrates the incomprehensibility of God. He exists and may be truly known, but he can never be fully known. What we know about God, we know truly. But with our finite minds, we can never know him fully, and that's true of everybody else as well. All right, we will do lesson two next week, 11 o'clock. Pages 13 and 14 have the homework in preparation for next week. Next week, we're going to begin to look at the attributes, the character qualities of God. In particular, we're going to look at his, the fact that he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and that he has all authority. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opening lesson and this time together in Master Plan for Life. We ask you, Lord, to bless our endeavor over these now next 27 lessons together. I ask you to help my brothers and sisters and friends to be able to prepare during the week, to be able to attend on Sundays. And during these weeks together, may we get to know you truly and get to know you better and thereby fulfill the purpose for which you have placed us here, to display your character back to you and to and in your world. We ask you to go with us this week as we seek to do that and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.